This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 28th of January. And since the start of the pandemic, there's been a lot of armchair talk about which countries have done well and which countries haven't done well when it comes to controlling the pandemic and maybe if there were characteristics of those countries that they had in common. Sort of people want to know what it is that has made some places more successful than others. And while we can have our own theories about how that works, some people have actually looked at it in a data setting, including some very smart minds at the Lowy Institute. And joining us today is one of them. Welcome, Hervé Lemayu. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming in, Hervé. Just broadly describe the research that you've done. Sure. So we've looked at the the impact that geography, political systems, population size or development status has had on COVID-19 outcomes for different countries across the world. So we're looking at about 100 countries and we're trying to assess whether there are structural factors, the way that societies are set up, that determine whether they have performed better than others uh, on average. And, uh, and what sort of outcomes have you been defining there as part of that research? Well, we, we have to look at the, what the data allows us to look at. Um, so at the moment, we're looking at a combination of confirmed cases and deaths, uh, confirmed cases per million and deaths per million, as well as the, the testing regimes in every country, how extensive they are, but also more importantly, the confirmed cases per uh, thousand tests undertaken. So that gives us a sense of the severity of the scale of COVID-19. So essentially what we're looking at is the prevalence of COVID-19 and how uh, serious this has been in terms of the uh, overall cases, in terms of deaths, but also on a per capita basis, which is quite important when you're looking at comparing societies of widely varying sizes. How do you control for things like some countries don't have the resources to do the same amount of testing as, say, Australia has? How do you take into account the fact that lots of actual cases might have not been registered? Yeah, that's absolutely one of the key constraints of, of undertaking an exercise like this. So we look at tests undertaken per thousand people um, as one of the six uh, core indicators that go into this. There are countries that don't have very good testing regimes, and then we have to assume that the COVID-19 prevalence rate is much higher than what the data suggests, but that actually is marked against those countries. So we're actually testing how, how good their testing system is as one of the the fundamental markers of, of performance here. And before we get to the results, just to remind CoronaCast listeners, one of the key metrics is your positive rate within your testing regime. So if your positive rate, if you, if you hear that Mexico's had a positive rate of 10%, that's enormously high, which is either because they've got a whole lot of COVID, but it's usually because they're not doing that many tests. Whereas we've, I don't think we've, I think maybe once or twice we've gone over 1%, but very rarely beyond that. So let's jump to the results. Sure. I mean, firstly, I mean, the, we have to acknowledge that there's been now almost a year worth of data. Um, uh, sadly, we've, we've got about uh, 2 million deaths as of mid-January 2021 to this pandemic. Societies have been turned inwards to fight this invisible enemy, and it really has exposed competing structures, uh, vulnerabilities and political priorities. However, there's also been 
been a rise in in a sort of infodemic, um, so-called by the WHO, of narratives and counter-narratives about what kinds of states are inherently better suited to combating the virus. And what this data really shows is that it's a much more complex picture. Not a single type of country, whether by political system or by geography, emerges the unanimous winner. In fact, variations between individual countries are far more substantial than those between broader categories of countries. So that's an important qualifier. So being a democracy versus an autocracy doesn't make a difference? Doesn't hasn't made a significant differences. But what we do see are different strengths and vulnerabilities emanating from that. So there are certain structural factors which appear more closely associated with better management of COVID-19. And the single strongest correlation was in terms of population size. So countries with populations of fewer than 10 million people proved more agile on average than the majority of their larger counterparts in handling the health emergency uh, for the most of 2020. So that is the 36 weeks that have followed every country country's um, 100th case, confirmed case of COVID-19. Other factors, as you already alluded to, political systems, um, economic development um, have had less impact on outcomes than often assumed prior to this crisis or publicized by various governments in terms of their propaganda. And what this suggests is that along the lines of what American political scientist Francis Fukuyama has mentioned is that the dividing line in effective crisis response has not really been about regime type, but whether citizens trust their leaders and whether those leaders preside over a competent and effective state. And that seems to favor countries with smaller populations, more cohesive societies and more capable institutions. So what does the league table look like? We've got um, country rankings um, uh, where uh, you've got, for example, uh, Thailand, uh, Cyprus, Malta, Iceland, Australia, all cropping up in the top 10. But on top of that, we also provide a time series. And I think this is the other important qualifier is that many countries, even those with apparent success at suppressing the virus um, in, in initial outbreaks, have seen that uh, turnaround. So infections have surged again in many places that have uh, been so-called success stories. And, and what you see is the variations of performance across time. And that's another uh, important reason why we can't establish simple narratives about which countries uh, are inherently And better. are different factors at play with second waves? Because we've seen South Korea losing a bit of control, even Taiwan in the last few days, 800 cases, and then suddenly they've got an issue too. Yes. So what what seems to have happened, and for example, if you look at it by political system, authoritarian regimes apparently, on average, uh, started off in a better position. They were able to mobilize, on average, again, this is a, a general tendency, resources faster, lockdowns came faster, but to sustain that over time was was uh, more difficult for authoritarian regimes. Democracies apparently appeared to have course corrected. That is to say, they started as the weakest of the three political systems we looked at, including hybrid regimes, but improved remarkably through the first wave. So they seem to have learned uh, some lessons there, but some of them lost resolve as things started getting better. So that's Europe, for example. At one point, Europe started from being the worst position of all the regions globally to being the best performing region in the world, in fact, surpassing the uh, average performance of countries in the Asia-Pacific for over two months last year. But as soon as things got better, the uh, politicians appear to have lost some resolve in inflicting those heavy-handed measures on their citizenry. So what you see is that different societies react to circumstances in different ways on the basis of how they are uh, constituted and set up politically and structurally. So how did Australia do? And which country did you rank um, as number one? 
Ranked in first place was New Zealand, followed by Vietnam, Taiwan and Thailand. We've got Australia in eighth place, ahead only of um, Iceland. And it's it's remarkable. There's, a, there's a, a, so a constellation of smaller countries that really crops up at the top. And what they have in common is not just that they uh, had or instituted early border closures, but that they had uh, competent public health systems. Uh, and I think more importantly, that they were able to ring fence their smaller populations around international borders. So what you found is that for larger countries, central governments with large populations had a bigger challenge of managing the virus among a larger sampling of people with fewer internal hard borders between them. What makes uh, Australia so unique is not just the fact that it's an island continent, but almost the fact that it, the way it's organized its response around the virus is almost as if there were six or seven independent countries leading the response. You had uh, populations, uh, geographic Geographically divided, so Western Australia has nothing to do with New South Wales. Uh, that is not a it's luxury. Just the way they like it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but that is not a luxury that, for example, where I'm from in Belgium, we could afford. We have only two fewer parliaments than Australia does. We've got seven parliaments in Belgium for a population of 11 million people. But this is where a unitary government might have been more uh, effective. Talking about, you know, we haven't been talking about the United States, which has obviously done appallingly, as has the UK. The challenge then for President Biden, if I were to take you correctly, is to institute trust. Yeah, I think trust is a major factor and you can lose trust very easily and it's very hard to regain trust. So President Biden and the Biden administration more generally have, have a steep uh, road to climb there in the next few months. But they have turned the page and perhaps the end of the Trump presidency will catalyze uh, renewed trust in, in government. But clearly this feeds into uh, other problems of polarization, of a near failed state in many respects. So just looking to... A way, now I want to focus a little bit on the future and future pandemics. I mean, it sounds as if what you're saying, if you take Australia as, the, as one of the models here, is that we didn't respond as a 25 million person nation. We responded as eight or nine, four, five, one, two million nations, and the states kind of controlled it. So then the strategy then would be for a big country like the United States or even Russia is to go to those sub subunits and give them a lot of autonomy. The subnational level matters hugely here, but I would underline that it only matters, or it matters in so far as you can keep your population centres uh, uh, quarantined from each other, which is what we've been able to do in Australia only by virtue of our geography uh, and by treating our internal borders almost as if they were international borders. For a country like Russia, that may well be possible because you've got a population spread over an enormous uh, landmass for uh, highly urbanized countries, that becomes much more impossible. For countries with megacities, hyper-globalized, with populations of above 10 million, that becomes incredibly uh, difficult as well. So what's the recipe for the next pandemic from the research that you've done? I think it suggests that we are going to have to be much more focused, not just on uh, prioritizing the cost effectiveness of our public health systems, but indeed the resilience of our public health systems, their capacity to surge at times of uh, unprecedented crisis, um, even once in a generation. In Europe, the way that the initial sort of, I think, complacency was born out of taken, taking our 
public health systems for granted, thinking that they could cope with this foreign-born threat. Um, a lot of developing countries, on the other hand, did remarkably well for the first half of last year, precisely because they had a greater sense of urgency in imposing preventative measures at their borders because they knew their systems wouldn't be able to cope with community transmissions. So a sense of urgency, emergency protocols, not just at the international level, not just at the WHO level, but at national and subnational level matters hugely. Now, we're probably entering into another chapter of the pandemic entirely with the vaccine, and let's hope we are, uh, if the vaccines uh, prove effective, one or more of them. And that will, I think, probably stratify the results between uh, emerging or developing economies and advanced economies even more. Because one of the remarkable findings of this study is to suggest that actually there's been a more or less level playing field in the performance between developing uh, and rich countries because the measures uh, needed to stem the flow of this virus have been quite low tech. They've but been about home countries lockdowns. grab the vaccines for themselves. But now with the vaccines um, and the uneven distribution and the hoarding of vaccines, uh, we may well see rich countries gain a decisive uh, upper hand in crisis recovery efforts uh, and the developing world fall further behind and linger with this pandemic for much longer. And that's all from us on Coronacast today. If you want to ask a question, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click on Ask Your Questions and mention us in your comment so that we can find it. And we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow for Quick Fire Friday. Yes. <laughs> 